Well, hey, grab your Bibles, turn to Ephesians 4. We're going to be in Ephesians 4, just eight verses, verses 25 through 32. Um, if we could, I was going to read the passage. Um, I think it's a better idea to pray for Ukraine right now, don't you? Let's just take a moment and pray, if we could. Let's pray. Father, um, even driving over here as I listen to the news, you can um, sense fear, you can sense desperation. Father, we look at the conflict, and um, I'm not even sure we know what to pray or how to pray. We would just claim and pray that you would be who we know you to be, that you would be a God who comforts. I think of the Ukrainian people and how life has been um, turned upside down. The fears, the, um, the difficulties, the anger. Father, I pray that you would comfort them. I pray that you would... Honestly, for soldiers on both sides, young men fighting, maybe not even understanding the, the reasons or why. Father, I pray that you would um, protect. Father, I pray that you would give wisdom to leaders. I pray that you would bring peace. Father, I pray that you would protect the church, our brothers and sisters over there. I pray even for the upcoming days and months that we will be encouraged to hear stories that you are consistent to who we always have known you to be, that in the midst of crisis and storm, that you are, you are mindful, you are caring, you are loving, and you are drawing people to yourself. Father, we just uh, would pray for um, peace and sense in the middle of uh, chaos and insanity. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Okay, so I'm preaching eight verses this morning, we are in the very practical section of the book of Ephesians. The first three chapters were more doctrine or theological. Now we're going to passages that, quite honestly, if we're not careful, we could view them as lists of things that we should do or shouldn't do. In the eight verses that we're looking at this morning, some principles that I could pull would be don't lie, don't let anger consume you, to keep short lists, not to steal, to work hard, to be generous, to talk graciously, to not be bitter, to don't slander, don't root against other people, that we should be kind, tenderhearted, and forgiving. And so I'm going to, for sake of time, I'm going to group these under two kind of topics. We're going to look at integrity, and we're going to look at grace. And, and, and here's the challenge that we have this morning, integrity and grace I don't think anybody would be surprised that I'm teaching that in a church. Like, I think if you left here and, and you said, what did your pastor teach on? Well, he told us to be people of integrity and to be people of grace. That wouldn't shock anyone. I think you could hear a very similar message if rather than being in a church today, you were in a mosque, a temple, or a synagogue. These are universal virtues. The challenge this morning is when we get to a passage like this, it's giving us flat-out instruction on how we're to live, very practical stuff, we need to also consider the motive of why we're called to do these things. See, religious systems would say, um, live this way, have integrity, show grace. It'll make your life smoother. It'll make your life better. And maybe if you do a good enough job at it, God's going to like you. The Christian motivation is very different. We do it because God's already forgiven us. God's already shown us grace. We don't do it so that God will like us. We do it because God has already loved us. Do you see the difference? And that's an important distinction as we get into this passage. The big idea this morning, if you're keeping notes, is this. 
following Jesus requires seeing ourselves honestly and others with grace. Following Jesus requires seeing ourselves honestly and others with grace. I was working on this yesterday morning. I think I came up with a better idea. Better idea would be this. Integrity and grace are the results of fixing our eyes on Jesus. Integrity and grace are the results of fixing our eyes on Jesus. That's not in your notes. That's free, okay? So here's what I want to start looking at as we go through the text. Just keep a copy of the text. I'm going to bounce around in this passage a little bit, but we're going to spend most of our time just in these eight verses. I want to give you three motives for change. The Christian way of change, the way that we are transformed is we put something off and we put something on. Here's the three motives behind why we would choose to do this. Number one, because the alternative is really broken. Because the alternative is really broken. In verse 25, it says this, therefore... And he's going to go give us the instruction, but he's giving it in contrast to what he's just said. And what he said back in verse 17 is this, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. He's saying the old ways futile. Verse 18, they were darkened in their understanding. They were alienated from the life of God. They were ignorant. They had hard hearts. End of verse 19. And then he says in verse 20, this isn't what you learned in Christ. It's interesting, as I was preparing for this sermon and study, I often listen to another pastor. He's a guy out of Manhattan by the name of Tim Keller. Brilliant guy. And I was looking for his insight on this passage, and I realized I had two problems after listening to Tim Keller. The first was this. He took these eight verses, verses 25 and 30 through 32, those eight verses, and he preached through them in 11 weeks. I'm like, oh, crud, I only got one week. And he's better than me. This is a problem, Okay. The second thing that was interesting to me, and I quote him here, this is how one of the things that he said in his messages, he said, speaking of our country and our culture, he said this, he said, our trust, our nation's trust in our institutions is at an all-time low. How many of you would agree with that? Okay, great. Here's the problem. He said it in 1991. 1991, 30 years ago. That's pre-internet. That's pre-social media. We'd never heard of Monica Lewinsky. 911 or 9-11 was a number that you called in an emergency. That's all we knew it to be. And if he was saying this 30 years ago, I wonder what he would say now as it relates to our country. And, and, and here's my challenge. As I talk about integrity, as I talk about truthfulness, the backdrop of our culture, most of the people in our culture don't even believe in absolute truth. They believe in relative truth. Well, you have your truth and I have my truth and truth is relative. And, and quite honestly, truth is in subject or is subjected to my perception or my reality when actually truth is the absolute. We need to subject our reality and our perceptions to it. Our world's upside down. And as I get into these topics of forgiveness and integrity and grace... Sometimes I'm worried that in a culture that is so far removed from this, can we just admit we don't trust our authorities anymore? And by the way, they deserve it. There's been a massive failure of integrity at all levels. We don't trust our leaders. We don't trust our politicians. We don't trust our news sources. This week I've been listening to the coverage of what's going on in Ukraine, gut-wrenching. Hey, hey, just curious, if, if I turn to Fox News, 
Which president do they blame for the conflict in Iraq? Fox News. Oh, it's Biden. It's his weak leadership. I challenge you to go a half an hour without hearing that, listening to Fox News. Flip over to CNN. Okay? Which president do they blame? Trump. It's his foreign, foreign relation policies of the last four years. So our two major news sources are blaming different presidents. Why? Not only do they have different perspectives, they're bringing different agendas. What is Fox News' agenda? What is CNN's agenda in the way that they present truth? 22 midterms. It's the elections. They want influence. There's an agenda. There's a motive. There's a perspective. And we've seen this. We become so used to it that we don't trust anything. In our country, there's not an authority that's trusted. We don't trust the police. We don't trust teachers. We don't trust pastors. We don't trust bosses. It's interesting. Back in 2008, before I was a pastor, I was invited by our Department of Defense to go to Iraq. And I was looking at a specific investment in Iraq that they asked me to come over and assist with. But while I was there, I didn't know this before I went, they were going to fly me around the country to meet with other leaders because they wanted to show off the fact that they were bringing American investors into the country. They were trying to stabilize the country and they wanted to promote the idea that more U.S. investment was flowing into the country. So one day they asked me, when I say asked, I mean, I mean told, the Department of Defense told me that they were going to fly me down to southern Iraq to the state of Najav to meet with the governor there. And in briefing me for this meeting, they said, you need to know that the governor that you're going to meet with under Saddam Hussein, before he fell, he was Saddam's chief of police. The dude was an assassin. And I'm like, help me understand how Saddam's chief of police can be a governor of a state or a region in Iraq. They looked at me and said, well, the people elected him. I'm like, so you're telling me the elections are rigged? They said, no. He wanted an affair election. I said, how can that be? And they said, that's all the people know. That's all they've ever experienced. They don't understand freedom. It's, it's foreign to them. They just elect the leaders that they've already known. What I'm trying to teach in this passage that we're looking at is so countercultural to where we are because our culture is so broken. So Paul is saying, put off the old way that we're surrounded with. And though our culture is broken, can I remind you of something? Jesus is not. He can be trusted. His word is good. His talk and his walk were the same. He modeled integrity, and he showed us not just how to forgive, he exampled it for us. So three motives for change. The alternative is broken. We don't want to stay hard-hearted. Here's the second one. You don't belong to you. In our text, it says this in verse 30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. He's like, don't stay in the old way. You're going to grieve God. You belong to him. Paul in Ephesians 4, the first verse of the chapter says, I, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk worthy into the manner of which you've been called. Verse 25 says, put away falsehood, speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Hey, we don't belong to us. You don't belong to you. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you belong to God. You belong to your community of believers. You are not the center of your universe and you are not the star of your show. 
and being a follower of Jesus, part of the deal, what you signed up for, is you are going to lay down some of your rights. It's a non-negotiable part of what it means to follow Jesus Christ. Here's a third thing. Please see this in the text. Verse 27 Actually, verse 26 is, uh, be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Verse 27, don't give Satan a chance. That word opportunity in the uh, New International Version, it's translated a foothold. The King James says a stand. If you give Satan, if you give the enemy a place to stand in your life, you won't have to invite him twice. Several years ago, we were in the church in Lamoru, Kenya, since have planted another church in Busia, Kenya. But as we were launching that church, uh, my wife, Kristen, and I, and another couple, Bob and Sharon Westra, we took a couple extra days at the end of one of our trips over there, and we went across Kenya to an area called the Masimara, and we went on safari. And we went there in April, which is the off-season for safaris. Most will go in October because that's when they have this thing called the migration of the wildebeest in that area, and people want to come over and see that. And if you go then, it's really crowded, it's really packed, there's tons and tons of safari jeeps on the plains of the Masimara. We were there in April. We were at a resort that had room for maybe 125, 150 people. There were five of us. My wife, me, the Westras, and this single gal. What she was doing there, I have no idea. She just tagged with us wherever we went. And one day we were out, and I wanted to go see the place the, the Kenyan-Zambia border where the wildebeest would migrate across the river, and when they come across the river, it's kind of cool. They get chomped by crocodiles. And my guide was like, why would we want to drive an hour to go there? Because you're not going to see the wildebeest. It's the wrong time. I said, I just want to see where they cross. I thought it would be cool. And against his better judgment, he drove us there. Well, when we got there, across the river, stacked on the Zambia side, it just happened to be that there were hundreds and hundreds of zebra waiting to cross the river. And we're like, this is going to be awesome. And he's like, no, no, no. He goes, they might stage there for hours, they might stage there for days, they'll make false charges and back off. It could be a long time before they start to cross. We need to get back. We're like, okay. And the minute that we said, okay, they started to cross, throw the next picture up. So Bob Wester took that picture as we sat there. We were the only safari jeep witnessing this, and the zebras made a run. And as they jumped into the water, some of them would swim across, some of them would actually get picked off and dragged down by some of the crocodiles that were there. Some of them would make it to the other side, but maybe a leg had been broken in the process, or maybe a crocodile had taken a chomp out of them. So when they got to the other side, they were gathering again as a herd, but they were neighing like horses because some of them were wounded. Well, in a very rare opportunity when they were named that attracted the lions who don't normally hunt in midday but it was midday but because of the commotion the zebras were making all of a sudden some lions came flying into the scene so we're sitting in our one safari jeep we're looking this way at the river and all of a sudden two lions cut within about 20 feet behind our safari vehicle that'll wake you up and they go into this they pick out a wounded zebra they take it down 30, 40 feet in front of our safari jeep. And then two other zebras join them. There's four female zebras, and they take this thing down. It's just 40 feet in front of us. Put up the next picture. That's what it looked like. And from where we were, it was kind of gross. They're pulling out the intestines. They're pulling out the guts. They're slurping. They're chomping. Happy campers. The Westminster Confession tells us that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Satan is on the prowl. 
He's going to do whatever he can to keep you from glorifying God, and he'll do whatever he can to steal your joy. There's motives behind this list. I could give you a a, a ton of great motives. The motive is we want to be pleasing to the Lord. Here's the first truth today. Put off falsehood, put on truthfulness. Verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth to his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Go down two more verses to verse 28. It says, let a thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Okay, here's a question from verse 28. When is a thief no longer a thief? It's interesting. There was a gentleman by the name of Forrest Tucker. He lived from 1920 to 2004. He was an American criminal first arrested when he was 15 years old. He was a bank robber. That was his crime of choice. And over the course of his career, authorities estimate that he robbed banks of over $4 million. What makes him more memorable is every time they put him in prison, he's considered the greatest escape artist in American history. He broke out of prison successfully 18 times, including San Quentin. It's interesting. He was arrested for the final time. He would die in prison in 2004, but he was arrested for the final, the last time in 1999. He got sloppy. He robbed four banks in his own community. He acted alone. He was 79 years old. (laughs) Robin Banks. I know that story because in 2018, there was a movie called The Old Man and the Gun. It was about his life story. It was done by Robert Redford. It was a fitting tribute. It was such a boring movie. I felt like it robbed two hours of my life. (laughs) When is a thief no longer a thief? Listen, if he doesn't put something else on in the place of thieving, he's just a robber between heists. That's all he is. You put off stealing. You put on generosity. You put on hard work. You put off falsehood. You put on truthfulness. Let me break this down. Therefore, having put away falsehood. Do you know what that word falsehood means? Lying. Flat out. Here's what the text is saying. Stop lying. Well, I don't, I don't lie. I don't, I don't knowingly lie. Let me, let me press in on that because I think there's ways that we lie. I think we're smart. I think we're subtle. There's ways that we lie sometimes without thinking about it. Partial truths. We can lie by what we say and what we don't say. We can use imprecise speech which leads to false conclusions. We can leave an untruth believed. We can slant our descriptions of an event to our favor, putting ourselves in a better light. Here's another one, 100% words. Hey, why do you always? How come you never? Spouses, when you get in a fight with your spouse, be warned of 100% words. Like, gasoline to a fire, they accelerate the dispute. Because when we use 100% words, we're accusing our spouse of more than they're guilty of. All you'll do is raise their defenses. I I would challenge spouses, listen to yourself when you argue. Don't use 100% words. At a time when you're not arguing, that's important. Agree with your spouse to outlaw 100% words from your arguments. Kristen and I have done this. It's not easy. We'll get in a fight and I'll say, well, how come you always, and she'll be like, always, I always do that? Really? Every time? Like, like she calls me on it. 
100% word every time. Don't allow it. 100% words. It's falsehood. It's lying. Exaggerations. A statement that represents something is better or worse than it really is. Back 25 years ago when I was running businesses, I had a critical position to fill. I was desperate to fill this with a qualified individual, and I found a guy who would be perfect for the role. And in order to attract him to the position, I oversold the opportunity. I made it a better opportunity than it actually was. And he took the bait. He took the job. And for the next year and the next two years, I lived with the nightmare of his frustration that was brought on by an unmet expectation. I'd oversold the opportunity. It's a lie. It's a falsehood. It's an exaggeration. And here's another one, hypocrisy. The practice of claiming to have moral standards or beliefs to which one's behavior does not live up to or conform. Listen, the goal in all of this is integrity. It's integrity. That word falsehood, if, I were to, if you were to look at it in the Greek, that word is pseudo. That, that word pseudo, we know it from words like pseudonym. If I were to write a book under a pseudonym, I'm writing it under a false name. He's saying, don't be something that you are not. Back when I was starting in business, I was working for my father-in-law, and there was another guy who worked with me about my same age who was not nearly as smart as he thought he was. And my father-in-law would always point this out to him. He called him his pseudo-intellectual. You're just a pseudo-intellectual. But the funny thing was, my father-in-law never used the word pseudo. He always said suedo. You're just a suedo intellectual. And every time the guy would go, Bob, the word is pseudo. And Bob would just smile at me. He never got it. <laughs> Claiming to be something that you're not. For a lot of years, I owned an indoor soccer facility in our community up in Norton Shores. And I played there for a lot of years. And um, about 10 years ago, I wasn't on a team. I was asked to play for a team that was short guys. And uh, I agreed to play. It was an over 30-year-old men's rec league, okay? And as I got ready to play, I kind of looked across at the team we were going to be playing. There was a guy that I was going to be marked up with all night. And right before the opening kickoff, he slid a mouth guard in. And I'm like, oh, crud. I just want to be able to walk to work tomorrow. That's all I want to do. Like, not that guy. And we started the game, and... Um, Sure enough, I'm getting hit, I'm getting checked, he's kicking me, he's fouling me. The ref's in a bad spot because I own the place, so he's not sure what to do with all of this. And um, I'd had enough. And, and there's walls in an indoor soccer facility. I came to a wall, I put my hand here to brace it. He was coming up behind me, I knew he was going to hit me. I was holding the ball here with this foot. And as he got close, I knew I was about to get fouled. I quickly spun this way. The ref was there, and as I spun, I threw my elbow and clocked him. I got the call. The ref was right there. He couldn't see the elbow. His bench was, the other player's bench was right behind me. They saw the whole thing, and they went nuts. And so all of a sudden, there's arguments, there's disputes. The ref's trying to get control. He blows his whistle, and um, I subbed myself out. And uh, I walked out of the place, and um, I never played indoor soccer there again. That was my last game. I was a pastor. Really? I'm throwing elbows in an over-30 men's rec league? Like, are you crazy? 
be who you are wherever you are. That's what integrity demands. And some of you would look and go, why didn't you just get control of your temper? Because I couldn't. I couldn't put myself in a position again where my testimony would be wasted and I'd be inconsistent to who I claim to be. Like, like that's what integrity demands. Why would we choose integrity? Well, I could give you a lot of reasons. Yeah, it's better business to tell the truth. It's less stress. You don't have to remember everything you lied about. It's going to be better for you relationally. Look, I can give you a lot of practical reasons why not to lie. Can I give you the main one? If you really believe that God is who he says he is, then you've got to acknowledge that God sees. Falsehood's a really dumb strategy. Put off falsehood. Put on truthfulness. Be a person, be a man, be a woman of integrity. Our integrity is about our relationship with Jesus. It's about nothing else. And I just ask you some questions as we close this section. What is your behavior like when no one sees when you're alone? Is it different? Do you use different language when you're around certain friends compared to what you would use around other people? Is your behavior different when you're with your neighbor friends or your work friends than it is with your small group or a church? Are the integrity breakdowns that you're experiencing in your life, are they making you happier or less happy? Is it creating less stress or more stress? Do you live with the guilt and shame of knowing that you're not always who you are? Put off falsehood, put on truthfulness. Here's the next thing. Verse 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that may give grace to those who hear. Verse 31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Okay, so the, the point here in your notes, if you're keeping them, put off rottenness, put on grace. Okay, why use the word rottenness? Well, because that's what the text says. Put off rottenness. That word means to be rotten, to be putrid. I, I don't know what you think of when you think of putrid. I don't know what comes to your mind. I remember growing up in the Chicago suburbs. I don't know why we made this choice as a family, but we didn't have Tupperware. All we had was old repurposed sour cream jugs, country crock jugs. Do you guys, any of you know what I'm talking about? Like that was what our fridge was filled with. So as a kid, I'd wake up in the morning and all I wanted was the real butter, but I had seven country crocks to find it in. Okay, so you open the first country, country crock and it's leftovers. And you open the next country crock and it's green. It used to be the stuffing from Thanksgiving. That's putrid. It's rotten. And he's saying, listen, put that off. Show a little kindness. Practice a little forgiveness. And here's a shocker. In the broken world, just so you're not having false expectations, listen, your neighbors are sinful. The people that you work with are sinful. Your spouse, sinful. Your spouse's spouse, sinful. That's you if you haven't, like, <laughs> done the math. 
We live in a broken world. You're going to experience betrayal. You're going to experience hurt. You're going to get wounded. The the command to forgive in verse 32, forgiving one another, it assumes, it's already assumed that we're going to know what it feels like to feel betrayal, to be hurt. Let me define forgiveness for you. The word in the Greek actually means to send away, to lay it aside, to leave it. Forgiveness means that we're willing to cancel the debt that was incurred and caused by the offense. And please make no mistake, forgiveness is a choice of the will. Don't convince yourself that it's anything but a choice. It's a choice that you're willing to make or you will not make. To give a little more detail to the choice that you're making when you tell someone that you'll forgive him, think of it as a a three-part contract. When you say, I will forgive you, you are making a contract that you will not bring up the offense to that person again. You won't hold it against their account. You're canceling the debt. You won't bring it up to others. And then the hard one, you, you won't bring it up to yourself. I taught this last night at Spring Lake and a girl came up and asked this question, what happens if I'm really doing my best to forgive but I'm continuing to be reminded of the offense? I can't get the thing out of my mind. Well, I would say that forgiveness is a choice that you make and it is also a process. And as you're going through the process in your emotions or something triggers you back to the offense, you've got to go back to the crisis, to the moment that you chose to forgive and submit what you're feeling in that moment to the choice of the will that you made to begin with. You've got to remove and cancel that debt. It's interesting. It doesn't just tell us in verse 32 to forgive one another. It gives us how to forgive one another. Has God in Christ forgave you? Well, well, how did Christ forgive us? Psalm 103 verse 12 says, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Hebrews 8 12 says, for I will be merciful towards their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. Hey, question, can God forget our sins? It says right there, I, I, I will remember their sins no more. Can an all-knowing God forget? No, he cannot forget. He doesn't hold those sins against us. Why? That's why we can read in 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, we're not destined for wrath, but obtaining righteousness through Jesus Christ our Lord. When we sin and seek forgiveness through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, no longer are we seen through the lens of our failures and our sin. Jesus paid that price. They're no longer against our account. Our debt has been canceled. Though our sins are as scarlet, we're seen white as snow. We're called to forgive as Christ forgives. Now, before I get too far into this, before your inner lawyers start firing, let me make sure that we understand what forgiveness isn't, what forgiveness doesn't mean. Here's something. Forgiveness doesn't mean that we forgive ourselves. Well, I I can't forgive other people until I'm willing to forgive myself. A couple things. You can't forgive yourself. That's like the guilty party saying, well, I guess I'm not guilty. If you are not a follower of Jesus Christ, you are in desperate need of forgiveness, and you go to the Lord and you seek His forgiveness. He's the one that forgives. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you might be having trouble forgiving yourself. That's not really the problem. You don't see yourself as God sees you. You don't see yourself as forgiven. You believe that your offenses are too great and you continue to define your identity by your failures rather than by God's grace. Forgiveness does not mean that we put others at risk. Forgiveness doesn't mean that we put others at risk. Let me me spell this out. If you grew up in a home 
And if you were abused by your parents, you can choose to forgive your parents, but that doesn't mean that you let them babysit the grandkids. Like, like use some wisdom here. Our forgiveness of somebody and canceling the debt to us doesn't allow us to put somebody else at risk. Forgiveness doesn't mean that we enable or rescue. There are going to be times, there are going to be seasons when you would like the relationship restored. You feel the weight of the broken relationship, but if that relationship is restored in the moment, you're enabling, you're rescuing. When the accuser is accusing, when the liar is lying, when the addict is addicting, when the prodigal is prodigaling, okay? You stand ready to forgive, but potentially restoration might have to wait. And here's another thing. Forgiveness doesn't mean a lack of relational conflict. There are some that would look and say, wow, if you're struggling in any relationship, that is an indication that you, that you or the other person doesn't know how to forgive. That's nonsense. Philippians 1.27 says, let the manner of your life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Listen to this, verse 28. And do not be frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. Verse 29, it's been granted. It's like a gift. It's a present. It's been given to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. This is Paul writing. What he's saying is part of the Christian walk is understanding that you're going to have some conflict. If you want to avoid all conflict in your life, don't choose to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Stand for nothing. That's how you avoid conflict. Sometimes speaking the truth, being a person of integrity, creates its own conflict. Here's some reasons why we choose not to forgive. Number one, the hurt is just too big. And I'm not naive. I understand in a room with this many people in it, the hurt that you're struggling to forgive is such a deep wound. It is such a strong betrayal that your tendency is to look and say, David, you have no idea what you're talking about. And I don't. I don't. I got my own stuff I got to deal with. My own obedience I've got to submit to what's being taught here. Sometimes we believe the hurt is too big. Here's another one. All time will heal. <laughs> time heals nothing. Verse 26, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the, sin go, the sun go down on your anger. There's an urgency to this text. There's an urgency to this text. And my fear would be some of you become really comfortable with saying, well, I forgive you, but the relationship will not be restored. That's going to take time. Man, man I'm going to caution you on that approach. Let me explain. Think of it in a courtroom context. If the person that has sinned against you is the defendant and you are the plaintiff and you're trying to bridge that relationship and you look at the person and say, hey, I forgive you, but the restoration of a relationship, it's going to take time. Some questions. How much time? Who decides? How much good behavior has to be exhibited before you're willing to fully give your forgiveness? I'm worried that you're sliding from the plaintiff position into the judge capacity, and when you slide into the role of judge as it relates to your forgiveness, I don't think you're without bias. You were the one that got hurt. The hurt is too big. Time will heal. 
I cannot forgive because I cannot forget. That's just plain stupid. The reason you can't forget is because you won't forgive. The choice to not forgive is the choice to constantly bring the offense back to mind. And finally, I'll forgive when they repent. Some of you have studied this issue. You can even bring a verse to the debate. So can I, because I've used it. It's Luke 3, or 17, verse 3. It says this, If your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I, re I repent, you must forgive him. And, and you would argue, see, the Bible's very, very clear. Our forgiveness is dependent on if, whether or not they repent. Can I point some problems out in that? Do a study. We don't have time this morning. Do a study on every time forgiveness is taught in the New Testament. Jesus teaches on it. Paul teaches on it. Peter teaches on it. John teaches on it. And in the myriad of verses that address forgiveness, including the passage that we're giving right now, repentance isn't required before forgiveness. This is the one exception. So do we let the many interpret the one, or do we let the one interpret the many? And then we got a logical problem. If your forgiveness is dependent on the other person repenting, I would just ask you logically, why are you giving that person, the person who hurt you, wounded you, betrayed you, the power to determine whether or not you're going to forgive? Why would you do that? Why would you let that bitterness grow based off the party who offended? One more. If I forgive, they'll do it again. I'm going to withhold my forgiveness because that's how I protect myself. And I would just argue that forgiveness is a difficult choice. You have to release the offense. You have to let go of the bitterness. You can no longer view yourself as a victim. And quite honestly, for some in this room, your lack of forgiveness and your bitterness is the thing that keeps you warm at night. It's not an easy decision. The alternative is rough. Here's what happens when we choose to forgive. We have the potential to enjoy healed relationships. But another thing, we're obedient. We always say here, blessing follows obedient. The choice to forgive is in obedience to what God has commanded to you. In verse 32, when it says, forgive one another as God in Christ forgave you, that's not a suggestion by Paul. That's a command. Here's another one in a culture that is way better at canceling than forgiving. Forgiving is a powerful testimony. Relationships restored is not the norm. It's unusual. It gives us a strong witness. And here's a big one. It's worded weird. We are renewed in the spirit of our minds. Why would I say it that way? Because that's exactly what verse 23 says. And be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Here's what Paul is saying. When you choose integrity and you choose forgiveness, you are stopping rottenness and corruptness and malice and anger and clamor from rotting your soul. You think you're protecting yourself by not forgiving someone? You're hurting yourself. You're choosing rottenness over relief. The goal in all of this is this, trusting and imitating Jesus. Hey, this is hard stuff. I understand it because you're in your mind applying it to particulars. It's difficult teaching. Some of you are like, are you suggesting that I should forgive someone even when they don't deserve it? Yes. Aren't I likely to get hurt again? Absolutely. 
This seems really illogical. Do you know why it's illogical? Because it is, with one exception. It becomes way more logical when we consider Christ in the cross. Simply stated, forgiven people forgive. That's what we're called to. When it doesn't make sense, when it's hard, when it's difficult, and when it's undeserved, because we were forgiven when we didn't deserve it. First Peter 2.21 for to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Speaking of Jesus, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When, when he was reviled, that, that word reviled means when he was villainized, when he was made the bad guy, when he was abused by others' speech, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. Get this next phrase. But he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Okay, there's a list of do's and don'ts. We've just studied our way through it. Why would we choose to put off Falsehood. Why would we choose to put off corrupt thinking, bitterness, rottenness, and choose these other things? Not to have a better life, not to have more peace. We do it because our eyes are fixed on Jesus. And in doing it, we're entrusting ourselves. We're trusting a creator who is faithful. That's the motive. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. And um, even in difficult passages where the challenge just seems almost too much, I pray that you would give us wisdom. I pray that you would give us tender hearts. I pray for those in this room who are wrestling with these ideas of integrity, forgiveness. If people knew who I really was, they'd feel differently about me. If I choose to forgive. I'm going to get hurt again. Such difficult choices. Father, remind them that you're bigger than that. That you love them in spite of them. That you forgave. That you've called us. Father, become our identity. Let us live to serve you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.